India-US relations, India's foreign policy, climate and defence planning. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPI podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. First up this week, Fergus Hansen speaks to Rick Russo about the trajectory of the US-India relationship and lessons for Canberra in how Washington and New Delhi have approached their relationship. Welcome to the SP Podcast. I'm Fergus Hansen. We've got with us today Rick Rosso, who is the Senior Advisor and Wadwani Chair in US-India Policy Studies at CSIS. Rick, it's great to have you in the country and thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Fergus, real excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I was going to kick off, you spent a lot of time working and following the US-India relationship, which has had its ups and downs over the years, but also some really great successes with the civil nuclear agreement. What's your sense of the trajectory of the US-India relationship? And do you think that the US-India relationship could be a model for other Western partners, including on how to manage some awkward differences that come up from time to time? Yeah, depending on the time, you'd think that we would be maybe further ahead today in the relationship or further behind, depending on the period that we look at. I mean, you go back almost 20 years when we put in track the idea about sharing civilian nuclear technology announced in 2005, but frankly, the the concept had been ideated a little bit before that. But you might have thought that by now, we'd be like a, a, a security treaty partner or something like that with a free trade agreement and practically every other bell and whistle that's possible. Uh, that didn't quite happen because there's been, as you rightly point out, some bumps in the road. Civilian nuclear cooperation, frankly, has never taken off because of a, a liability law that uh, that Parliament passed. Um, today, if you kind of look both at the, the, the economic as well as the security front, um, security is mostly going in a very positive way, albeit probably more slowly than most Americans would like and even some Indians now. But we all agree on the common threat and challenge that we face, which is China. But still, you know, India has a, a long relationship with Russia that pulls the United States away a little bit. The United States, long relationship with Pakistan that still gives India some pause, but by and large, hitting new and important records in defense relations uh, pretty much every month. On the commercial front, you've got a lot of policy problems between our two governments. India has been very protectionist on trade since Modi came in because they have a huge trade deficit, and they're hoping that by putting up trade barriers, that'll help. Um, you've seen other issues that have impacted foreign companies. But at the same time, in the real world, you see uh, U.S.-India bilateral trade zooming up about 30% year on year. So breaking records, while at the same time, the two governments have got some real policy challenges. So commercial has been a bit of a mix, I think, in recent years. Good numbers, a little sour on policy, not quite as forward-leaning as Australia, which has signed at least an initial interim FTA. But defense has really been the bright star between the, in the relationship so far. And do you think there's lessons there for countries like Australia in terms of how both Washington and, and New Delhi have approached their bilateral relationship? I would say it's a bit of a bitter pill to swallow, but I think in the United States, it took some time, but we recognize that ultimately, you know, we need to first show that we have a lot of skin in the game and the things that India cares about. You know, I think the United States, when we look at, for instance, security threats, you know, we think of things in the Pacific first and foremost. India's vantage point is very much the Indian Ocean which, you know, for most American top-level strategic analysts, they don't care that much about a lot of the threats that India looks at at Tier 1. So uh, India realizes that they're quickly, you know, losing control of the Indian Ocean. China's got a much larger presence there and only going to grow over time. So they need partners and friends. But sometimes the United States doesn't always see that that's the theater that we should be most deeply engaged in. 
you know, I, I think that for us to, to recognize the threats India faces, to unwind some of the most difficult challenges like civilian nuclear cooperation, it takes big initiatives in things that India wants desperately, where the United States is not directly asking for something in return. A lot of people question, like, all right, we put these big things on the table. Is India actually stepping up and doing things kind of in response if it wasn't linked? And there's small things, but, you know, for instance, the first time ever, a U.S. Navy vessel just docked in India for repairs. 25 years ago, inconceivable. Mm. And we think about what utility that could have during wartime scenario, it's pretty important. India just joined Combined Maritime Force Bahrain, and they just joined the first ever joint uh, exercise in Seychelles. So there's small things. This may not be fighting ISIS and that kind of stuff that resonates the most in Washington, but those watching India very closely, these small steps in the right direction are pretty significant. I wanted to pick your brains a little bit on the, some of the domestic reforms that I know you've, you've worked on quite a bit. As you know, India recently withdrew its proposed data protection legislation. I think you, <laughs> we were chatting beforehand, you might have said paused. But I was just wondering, what's your, what's your sense of where data protection in India is heading and what can we expect next in, in terms of that legislation? There is a powerful gravity in India that's been there for 20 years to do something dramatic and fairly draconian on data protection. So it is coming. It is a question of when, not if. And how much, I think, uh, organizations, companies, and others can massage around the edges to make it a little bit less biting. But, you know, going back to my days running technology policy for the U.S.-India Business Council, we were engaged in some amendments to the IT Act in those days. They're going to adopt something that was somewhat similar to the EU Data Privacy Directive, which would have been very bothersome for American companies that don't want to have that kind of restrictions on data, managed to you know, convince that India's IT service market, which was at that time 90% reliant on U.S. data partnerships, convinced not to. But twice now, they've come back to the table on having more restrictive data policies. There's a few important drivers for it. To some extent, you know, they're worried about security. They want to make sure that the data is not ending up in the wrong hands. You've seen India moving fast on banning Chinese apps and things like that. You've got commercial issues where some of India's large conglomerates are looking to build data-reliant companies, and they don't want foreign companies to be able to manage, grab, manipulate data that give them a competitive advantage, and consumer interest. Now, I think by and large, consumers in India are only now just sort of coming online and having digital presence. So you don't have quite the same drive on consumer protections ground up in India like you do in some other markets. But among the elites in Delhi that think about these issues in a global presence, but probably a little further along on, on the consumer angle than what you see actual voters across the country. When elections happen, data privacy is not one of the top 150 million issues that the average voter in India cares about. But you put all these issues together, security and, and commercial and consumer protection, it's going to happen. It's a question of when, not if. And you're right, the personal data protection bill was shelved, but now they're talking about breaking it up into multiple pieces. They've already dropped the telecommunications bill. And we expect a privacy bill will come up sometime, they think, in the session of parliament starting next month. I think it's going to take a little more work than that, but but we'll keep our eyes open because the data bill is coming back in. So the data protection, social media regulation, that gets a lot of airtime in, you know, in the media that we track here, at least. What seems to get less sort of focus and attention is around some of the critical tech investments they're making. And one of the things we've been looking at is semiconductors. They're making a play in a d- to create a domestic semiconductor industry. I'm just wondering what's your assessment of how likely that is to, to come off and, and bear fruit? So 
to go to complete fabrication of semiconductors, the hurdles are huge. This isn't the first time they've announced big bank programs to try to lure in companies to make those investments. It's not just going to be a one-time, here's some money to get the thing up and running. You know, the kind of sustained investments you need. Because in India, you know, when you think about what a semiconductor firm needs, I mean, it's quality of manufacturing that goes beyond what India so far is doing. So the easy access to purified water, reliable electric power grids, not to mention the level of labor force, access to robotics and things that you need, a clean environment. These things are a little bit more difficult in India than some of the markets they're competing with. So uh, I would say the hurdles for, uh, for doing it are high out of the gates, some important programs, some money on the table to try to win investments and start you know, being competitive in that space. Um, but right now, you know, ask me dollars to donuts. Do I think it's going to take root? Do I think in 10 years they're going to be one of the five largest semiconductor manufacturers? I doubt it. I don't think this is going to take off to the extent the government would like it to. But uh, in these instances, I'm always happy when I'm uh, proven wrong. I think if you'd asked me a few years ago, is Apple really going to go in and do manufacturing of their high-end products in India? And now they're doing the Apple, the iPhone 14 there. You know, it is a signal to others that you can do high-end manufacturing and assembly in market. So things sometimes move a little faster than I expect. But right now, I think the semiconductor, if I was the Indian government, I would aim for a lot more manufacturing industries that involve a lot more labor and things like that. So I think the roads are a little bit high for them to, to hit the mark where they think they, they want to go to. Now, Rick, because we're in Australia, I've got to ask you a Australia-India question as well. We've been laying some groundwork in the India relationship over the years, particularly around uranium supply, but we've really crossed a Rubicon, it seems, with the, the China border clash. That seems to have provided some real strategic ballast to the relationship that is going to allow a, a wider blossoming of the, the Australia-India relationship. I'm just wondering whether you would agree with that assessment, whether there is this window of opportunity for a, a much greater deepening of the Australia-India relationship and you know, whether you agree with that proposition and where you see it going. Uh, you think about the Quad or major security partners in the region, it's hard to point to two countries that have done more to build a strong, sustainable relationship than India and Australia. They were the two weakest links of the Quad. You know, everybody else had good relations with each other, the United States with both, with all three countries, Japan with everybody else. But it took a long time for Australia and India to start seeing eye to eye. And it predates, it does predate the good work that Australia has done to try to hold that olive branch out, even predates the border crisis. You know, the work that your government did under the, you know, leadership of your former foreign secretary, Varghese, on pulling together the Australia economic strategy for India. I wish my government would do something that astounding. And to come out with these mini plans on how you meet some of the targets, it's not just the ones and done, but they actually look at that document again, which sometimes the big idea documents governments put out too, they kind of get put on a shelf. So security is certainly there, but you signed an interim FTA, you have a longer FTA coming, your economic strategy, there's a lot of great things that have been happening. And that I think is the most important element that unlocked the quad and where we are today, you know, with seeing actual working groups looking for the expanded up to a leaders level meeting, that's all due to Australia's great work along with India's uh, you know, receivership of that for the partnership to really have taken off. Great. Well, um, Rick, we're out of time, but I just want to thank you so much for making the time to come by ASPE during your, your visit in Australia. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thanks for having me here. Staying on the theme of India's foreign policy, Barney Graywell speaks to Akriti Vasudeva and Tista Prakash. Their conversation covers the US-India relationship, India-Australia ties, the potential of the Quad, and the priorities for these relationships going forward given the rapidly changing strategic environment. 
So hi, Akriti and Tista. It's lovely to have you at ASPI. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Today, I wanted to talk about, have a bit more of a conversation since we have an India-US expert and an India-Australia expert here at ASPI. Talk about the two relationships, you know, where they're going, how they can learn from each other, but also talk about the court and the trajectory of the court and the regional perceptions of the court, and of course, Indian foreign policy more broadly, especially given the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I'm going to start with a question for you, Akriti. The India-US relationship has been on a rise, especially since the signing of the civil nuclear agreement. There have been issues, but generally both see each other as important strategic partners. Given that the India-Australia relationship is uh, relatively newer in the sense that India-Australia only signed their comprehensive strategic partnership in 2020, but in fact, in some ways, progress a bit further than the India-US relationship because India-Australia signed the interim trade agreement this mm-hmm. year. Yeah. But how do you see those two relationships in terms of are they moving at the same pace? Does Australia have some sort of a benefit, you know, coming at a faster pace? And, you know, what can they learn from each other? Thanks, Fanny. That, that's a great question. I think that the U.S.-India relationship is fairly mature. I would say it has uh, grown really since, you know, 2000 when President Bill Clinton went to India. This is post the 1998 um, sanctions. And this is kind of the trip where he tries to sort of repair and normalize the relationship with India. And since then, it's basically been on the upswing. You mentioned the 2005, you know, conversation about the civil nuclear agreement, which was finally signed in 2008, 2009. And then moving on from that to focusing more on, you know, defense and strategic issues and, you know, then working together in the quad and with partners like Australia and Japan. Uh, but I think, you know, I would say in terms of what Australia and Australia and your relationship can learn from the US and your relationship is probably patience, because if you think about it, the first U.S.-India foundational defense agreement was signed in 2002, and then it took you know 15 to 20 years for the others to be signed. So there's something to be said for there is going to be you know a lot of excitement and vigor in building the relationship in the beginning, but to you know kind of last the long course, you have to have patience. You have to believe that the values of the, the two countries aligned, that their perceptions of you know threats and strategy in general uh, align. And if that belief continues, then you have to you can keep making progress on sort of the speci- specifics and the details. So, you know, on the US India side, a, a lot has moved in the last few years, but there still continue to be issues, whether if you think about technology transfer, that continues to still be an issue despite uh, so much progress in many other areas, whether, like I was saying, in terms of foundational defense agreements or the fact that India has a liaison officer at the Bahrain-based CENTCOM now, which you know used to be an issue for many years. There has been you know rapid movement on working together in the region, within the Quad. But like I said, I think it's also helpful maybe for the India-Australia relationship to learn from the India and US relationship to be broad-based. Because sometimes if there isn't, uh, you know, much progress on one side of the ledger of the relationship, other things can move forward. So on the U.S.-India side, you have education, health, climate, defense and security, you know, regional cooperation. 
there are many avenues um, to to make progress. And I think that's what I would say the India-Australia relationship should also aim to do. I'm going to go to you, Kista, now, as I think a true scholar on the India-Australia relationship from the 50s. That's right. Now. So, so from the Cold War, yeah. Yep. That's right. Um, I mean, given the progress in the India-Australia relationship over the last two years, I do think Akriti's made a great point about patience and having a broad-based relationship. But given our regional situation is rapidly deteriorating and we're seeing timelines getting shorter of not open conflict, but at least tensions, especially, I think, in the India-China border. So we're working now in a different timeline. I think we don't have that space of, say, two decades to work on the relationship, build those ties. So what do you think is important now in the India-Australia relationship? Oh, that's a tough question, um, but I'll try my best. So I want to point the listeners to take them back to 1950s, actually, because this is not the first time Australia-India relationships have really picked up. So between 1949 and 1969, India was the largest recipient of Australia's foreign aid. And this was largely to do with the fact that Australia's strategic interests lay in India. And largely that was to sort of deter it from falling into the, the Soviet kind of influence. And we're sort of seeing a similar kind of situation develop again in post-2017 where China has sort of given it a ballast to sort of come together. And as opposed to the U.S.-India relationship with Akriti just described, the momentum is new it's fresh and it's strong. So therefore, we have that much more energy to sort of, you know, get all of our stars aligned and and really sort of, you know, get our defense, get our economics and get our sort of people-to-people links as well, because we mustn't forget that Indians are the largest growing diaspora group in Australia as we speak. So I think that the priority right now is to really engage and and see how Australia and India can sort of work together to create a regional balance of power, whether it be through quad whether it be through sort of engaging Southeast Asia, because that sits at the heart of these two countries, and to really bring in the US and Japan as, as strong sort of key players. There is, you know, Australia and India can, can become the fulcrum of the Indo-Pacific in that sense. And I think there is a lot of hope that that, that that can happen. But you mentioned the word patience, and I'd like to coin a term if I can, strategic patience. We must keep that with India because it has historical relations with Russia, formerly the USSR. And that can't be just, um, that can't disappear. And it takes a long time. India is a big country, so it'll take time, but strategic patience. Can I just add one point on the US-India relationship? So I didn't mean to suggest this relationship is so new that it's only really developed in the last 20 to 25 years. I mean, if you look at the history of the US-India relationship kind of in the contemporary um, setting, the US and India actually developed diplomatic relations in 1946, even before India, you know, formally became India from British India. So I'm sure everyone who listens to the this podcast already knows uh, Tanvi Madan, who is an analyst at the Brookings Institution, but she's done a fantastic book looking at the U.S.-India relationship and how China's played a role in it since, you know, since the 1940s to to now. And she makes the point that, you know, U.S. and India essentially agreed that, you know, China was going to be a concern, but they didn't necessarily agree on the ways and means of working towards um, sort of that challenge and that that issue. So that's 
the US and India actually did cooperate very closely post 1962 war between India and China. There was an intelligence cooperation in many ways. Um, India went much further with the US than even we can countenance now. But I think, you know, that's why it's interesting and, and heartening to see that the pace of the relationship, because I think there are, again, aligning threat perceptions on China and maybe more agreement now on the ways and means of tackling the threat than there was before. That's a great point, Akriti. And I just had a follow-up question on that. Tista, you mentioned, you know, the stars have aligned. I think it's important to learn from the India-US relationship in the sense that, you know, India has had issues with the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, especially uh, in Afghanistan. And now we've seen some criticism of India's position on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think those are good examples of what you said about patience and what Tista said about strategic patience. So what can we learn from that? I think there's a level of maturity in the relationship that there's disagreements. I think India is not an ally, it's a partner. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think a lot of work has actually gone in uh, in the U.S.-India relationship to help observers and analysts and, and policymakers understand the constraints that exist on the Indian side when it comes to the India-Russia relationship. I will say, you know, these issues still come up, especially in the U.S. Congress or, you know, among those who don't work on the India relationship day to day. There is a lot of frustration because obviously, in the U.S., India is seen as an important strategic partner. You know, it's a democracy, has shared values, is a partner in trying to address the, Ch- uh, the China threat. But then, you know, why does it still have a relationship with Russia? Why isn't it being much more vocal about uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? But I think, you know, the conversation is very different on the administration side, those who directly work on the relationship. I think they understand the constraints. They understand that India has military dependence on uh, you know, Russia. It has systems, uh, Soviet or, or Russian systems in its arsenal. Uh, it is dependent on you know, Russia for uh, spare parts, and especially when it is in a situation where it, it's facing China on the border in a standoff that has now been going on more than two years, that it there are certain things it, you know, can or cannot say it. So I think there is an understanding on the administration side that there's been a fairly, uh, there has been uh, recognition that those constraints exist, whether that's on the you know weapon side or also oil purchases side, although you know that's becoming a little bit more contentious recently. So I think maybe the work of those who you know, focus on the India-Australia relationship would be to continue to have those conversations, to continue to talk about the differences, continue to talk about the constraints and see how you can move forward together. That's a great point. I also think, and I know the three of us have actually discussed this before, is that the institutional linkages, and you just mentioned you know, the administration, I think that sort of understanding of Indian foreign policy or Indian defense constraints, not just in the administration, I think would be important, you know, to flow through the institutions. And we've discussed this a lot <laughs> in our conversations. Or the Indian Foreign Minister, uh, Jay Shankar, recently said is the institutional chemistry that's needed. So I think that's something as well to learn from the India-US relationship. And there is a huge role for uh, think tanks as well. I mean, that's where, you know, a lot of the, the work is happening. That's where a lot of the candid conversations are happening as well about where the challenges exist. I mean, in the track two space, which is, you know, where analysts and academics and scholars and, you know, uh, former 
diplomats or officials meet and talk, that's where you you think about new ideas. You try to work through challenges. So that's really important as as well. I'm going to pivot now and start talking about the Quad. I think it's important to discuss, you know, how the three partners and Japan work together in the Quad. The Quad has taken an approach to do public goods for the region, you know, deliver vaccines, talk about climate infrastructure, but also quietly doing the security part with the Malabar naval exercise and now with the recently announced maritime domain awareness. In both of your opinions, and this is, I know, a long-standing debate now on the Quad, do you think that we need to move towards the more harder security stuff, start preparing for, uh, at least in my opinion, and feel free to disagree, security or you know conflict situations in the Indo-Pacific, or rather focus on the public goods side, looking at regional needs? So if I take that, I think it can't really, for me, be an either-or situation. So the quad vaccine mandate was essentially a, a PR campaign, if you will, for the quad, right? It was for the quad to get a regional buy-in because we have, you know, Southeast Asia in the middle that perhaps is a little bit ambivalent towards the quad. And strategically also, it makes sense, right? Because you've got the four countries in the quad that sit at the outset of the region and the heart of the region, which is, you know, the, the Southeast Asia countries and ASEAN, and, and which doesn't include East Timor, but East Timor included, it needs a buy-in of that region. So that's what sort of the, the vaccine mandate was geared towards. Now, the role of the quad is essentially as a, a power balancer in the region. And if tensions escalate, if China's aggression sort of increases, there will be a time where all states act in their national interest, as Hans Morgenthau, famous realist scholar, would say, in which case we have to think about sort of not doomsday scenarios, but sort of what do we do when we have to actually balance power. And in that scenario, we will have to perhaps supersede the needs of you know, Southeast Asia and really look towards how to actually balance China. And given you know, in this scenario, and this is all hypothetical, of course, if China does act increasingly aggressive, I'm sure there will be some kind of tangible changes in the Southeast Asian sort of view of the region as well, because they, you know, each state does act according to its national interest and increasingly aggressive China or India, Australia, Japan and the US also sort of harms Southeast Asian nations. So I, I suppose there will be a regional kind of quorum, hypothetically, that could be formed. I, I think I agree with what Batista said in terms of, I think that the Quad very deliberately, and it has you know, said this in statements, that it wanted to provide tangible benefits to the region, you know, provide goods, products now that will be, will be helpful. And that's, that's why we've seen more of a focus recently on you know, on vaccines, on the Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative, the conversations on on climate, infrastructure, etc. It's fairly clear what the kind of underpinning idea of the Quad is. I don't think there is any, there would be any disagreement that it is a mechanism that is a coalition of like-minded countries to balance China. And I think if you look at Quad activities too, there is a security element to the Quad. You know, the, the Quad countries did counterterrorism tabletop exercise in 2019. I think they're also about to do 
another one soon. If you look at just the the, the, the quad Malabar exercise, uh, what are the scenarios that those exercises focus on? Anti-submarine warfare. And I think that the idea then is for these countries to build habits of cooperation in the event that there would be a China-related contingency in the future. So I do think that the Quad has a security element. Yes, that's very true. But I do have a quick question before we end now. Tista, you said that the vaccine initiative was in a way a PR exercise. Do you think that was successful for both of you? I think it was successful in a way that it it showed what the Quad could do. It It showed that there was a potential for the Quad to come together and deliver something for the region. And, um, you know, aid and development finance is one thing, but to have four countries come together and provide aid at a time of such national, well, international emergency, I think it, it provided a very good sort of setup for future emergencies. And as climate change and uh, I hope not another pandemic, but, but it showed that the Quad has sort of cooperating um, agency. So I wouldn't say that there was a complete success in that sense, because we had, of course, you know, the Delta wave that just threw everything out of the water. But I think it set up a good sort of foundation for the Quad to come. Because let's not forget the first reason why the Quad came together, right? It was the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. Yeah. And and it was an, a, you know, humanitarian assistance disaster relief kind of you know, association. And that's its core sort of membrane. And that's what it does best. And I think as we go along, it'll get better. I think I agree. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. With COP27 underway, climate policies and addressing climate challenges are again in focus for governments around the world. Robert Glasser speaks to Joshua Busby about how the US Department of Defense is factoring climate change into their planning and lessons learned for Australia. Great, Josh. Thank you very much for joining us today on Policy, Guns and Money to talk about climate change and security. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but we've had a change of government in Australia earlier this year, and now there is suddenly very high ambition on the climate front, including uh, as one of the first acts of our new Prime Minister, uh, Albanese, to uh, instruct the Office of National Intelligence or uh, Intelligence Coordinating Agency to produce Australia's first climate and security risk assessment. Maybe we should just start by, I know you've, you've experienced some of uh, these uh, processes in the United States. Maybe we'd start by saying why or discussing why these risk assessments are important. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So, as an academic report um, entering uh, government, I had done similar kinds of hotspot risk mapping, looking at the likely impacts of climate on security in Africa and Asia with uh, two uh, U.S. Department of Defense funded research grants from its Minerva initiative. And during my uh, time of government, worked with the Department on the first DoD climate risk analysis in about October 2021. And I think in general, this helps concentrate the minds on the theory of the case about uh, how climate change may affect national security interests and more specifically thinking about what the particular impact might be in specific places. And so on some level, it helps to align uh, departmental thinking about what the kinds of security consequences to be uh, concerned about are, and uh, 
also you know, begin to think through where the like the consequences might emerge. Yeah, um, and we're I've had some discussion with our ONA ONI colleagues uh, who are leading this process, and uh, yeah, it sounds like it's a major challenge to consult across government on these issues. And I know uh, President Biden, shortly after he assumed office, also instructed uh, the, the agencies to do some work on climate insecurity and risk assessments, including, I know there was one national intelligence estimate on climate change and national security that I guess tried to aggregate the wisdom, the collective wisdom of the intelligence agencies. How did that process go uh, from wherever or whatever you can share with us about that? Was that a fairly uncontroversial and smooth process? So I, I wasn't as privy to the uh, sort of mechanics of the uh, intelligence assessment and probably can't really go into any detail other than to say that, that the, there were simultaneous requests for an intelligence anal analysis on climate security impacts as well as the DoD climate risk analysis. And so those were separate products that ultimately came out uh, around the same time, although, uh, uh, and so because that they, there was a simultaneity of development and the ways in which it, by necessity, the intelligence system works with the level of classification, the, our work on the DOD climate risk analysis was happening alongside. And so there is this uh, sort of happy crossover perspectives because there are similar sorts of inputs in terms of what the science says about the likely uh, impact of climate change. But there are different emphases that you'll see in, in the final products that come out. The public version of the uh, intelligence assessment focuses more on the impacts of wider contestation over mitigation and global governance of the climate problem, whereas ours is more narrowly focused on what it means for the, the Department and of And can you say a little more about what uh, the main areas of focus were in that? Is it like the resilience of the forces or alternative fuels or other things? So there were also parallel requests for adaptation so there was a uh, climate adaptation report that the DOD issued that came out in October of 2021 as well. And that is a separate product that came out from another part of the enterprise that's more focused on acquisition and sustainment. And, and so uh, our remit was mostly to focus on what, as part of the team that worked on the DOD climate risk analysis, was to focus on what does climate change meaning for DOD missions um, and mostly focused on allies and partners internationally or the wider international tableau, which includes uh, competitors. Uh, but it, it was a little different than other products that you might have seen out there. Like I believe NATO is also undertaking a similar analytical enterprise where it maybe bundles all of these topics under a single rubric so it could cover everything from installations vulnerability to uh, efforts to deal with the mitigation challenge of NATO's environmental footprint to what does it mean for overseas missions. Mostly our work in the DoD climate risk analysis was focused on overseas missions, although it did have a component looking at since DoD is often uh, 
supports civilian agencies with defense support civilian agencies, domestic humanitarian emergencies, that there's a role to play there that that report speaks to uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, in Australia, this the challenge of uh, the, the defense uh, forces increasing engagement in responding to domestic disasters driven by climate, or at least which climate's contributed to, it is really creating challenges, this issue of concurrency, where um, there's some trade-offs, particularly maybe less so for us, for the US perhaps because of the larger defense force, but for Australia, when the Australian defense forces have to respond to big domestic emergencies, there's some trade-offs in terms of preparedness or capacity to respond to other emergencies that could emerge at the same time. So I know this is concerning defense, that, and, and, and now the defense forces are being brought in, it seems, on an annual basis into these disasters that are becoming national-scale disasters like the floods we're experiencing currently. I think that the testing the force in the United States as well, we saw uh, that's particularly true for wildfires out west, that the National Guard, as they've described it as, no longer a fire season, but a year-round fire risk, and that the number of personnel days dedicated to uh, addressing fire has increased quite dramatically since 2016. Uh, that that comes up in uh, in other uh, reports, but the, I think it's the importance of having risk analyses like this to try to uh, elucidate what those potential trade-offs or opportunity costs are and why it's important to get ahead of this problem rather than be reactive and wait for your force to be tested dramatically and then to be unprepared for multiple missions that are simultaneous uh, or having to make these kinds of decisions on the fly, which are probably mean you're not as uh, capable of, of addressing domestic problems and international ones at the same time. I'm, I'm sure we've both seen examples where uh administrations uh, have asked the bureaucracies to do something and they do something, maybe they produce a report or something, but it ends up sitting on a shelf rather than resulting in any significant change. What can you say about the impact the various risk climate and risk assessment adaptation work has had, at least from your vantage point in the U.S.? So there are other kinds of risk products and analytical tools that the department's developing with respect to, say, installations exposure. There's the DOD climate um, assessment tool, which allows users to uh, assess at any location the single hazards or multiple climate hazards that the facilities may be exposed to and to rank facilities in terms of their degree of exposure, which can facilitate better planning about what, while that's in a very broad way, you know, it, it looks like uh, particular installations are subject to multiple hazards quite severely, then that can concentrate the minds on what are the kinds of uh, remediation processes that are needed to uh, prevent large scale damage in the event of climate uh, hazard emergence. And so that's a tool that's already been developed that has been employed, employed domestically and for U.S. Uh, bases overseas. And in fact, the Biden administration thought that tool was so useful that it offered to share a version of it with some of its closest allies and at the last yeah. Osman meeting. It, it, including yeah, Australia. Australia. And so there's a version of that that's been processed to be shared by 2023. Uh, 
and and so that that's hopefully a way in which our risk work to identify is then going to follow into budgets and so the president's budget request for 23 includes considerable resources to begin to address those risks and that we've got uh, a steady stream of projects that follow from that risk assessment that, that says these are the you know, top tier uh, installations of importance and it overlaps with other kinds of parts of the enterprise that look at um, mission assurance for uh, critical tasks. And so to avoid being purely a desk exercise that no one uses, it's intended to drive budgets. And similarly, future posture plans are now incorporating climate risk so that as we think about siting new facilities, we avoid placing them in areas that are not suitable from a climate perspective, or that if there are climate risks that you think about them in advance before making expensive decisions that you yeah, later address. That's really good. You know, one of the things that concerns us is that we're starting to think of climate now more, climate change more as a systemic risk. And our government and the bureaucracies aren't organized very effectively to deal with these cross-cutting risks. I've often used this analogy of putting on glasses. If you could have glasses that could enable you to see risk, it wouldn't be falling neatly into bureaucratic silos. It would be going in every direction, national, subnational, regional, global connections. I don't know if you have any insights you can share with us on how to manage, uh, how to organize, how governments should organize to deal with the scale of these systemic risks, given that scale is increasing rapidly. Yeah, what do you, do you have any insights based on either what you've seen in the U.S. or in your own uh, research or thoughts? The challenge of o overcoming administrative silos is a, is a really important one. Uh, there are a few processes that are out there that are intended to integrate across different dimensions. For example, the Global Fragility Act is intended to, not whole of government, it's certainly a joined up uh, process that brings together development, defense, and diplomacy under a common rubric for building 10-year plans for a, a handful of countries that were worried, or regions that were worried about. So there have been some uh, interagency efforts to develop those 10-year strategies under the uh, Global Fragility Act, and they're intended to be accompanied by resources to support that endeavor. Um, there are, are that's what the National Security Council's for, uh, as sorry, serving as a sort of um, convener to bring together voices across the interagency to address uh, common problems so that there should be bureaucratic processes that try to uh, be integrated. Uh, and I think there are also informal processes that the action officers maybe are able to reach out to the counterparts and other agencies that happen more as a matter yeah, of... Yeah, I think in Australia, we're concerned that our own risk assessment would basically be an exercise that has to develop some terms of reference and then ask each agency to determine its own risks, even if there's huge overlap between them, it might be more efficient for that to be done more collectively rather than and then rather than just collated at the end of the process. Fortunately, I don't believe that's the approach we're taking, which is good. Josh, let me ask you another question. A few months ago here in Sydney, Australia and the United States, our chief of the Defence Force, Angus Campbell, and 
uh, Admiral Eccolino from Indo-PACCOM, co-hosted the a meeting of the chiefs of defense from the Indo-Pacific region. And climate and security risk was the very first item on the three-item agenda for the discussion, which I thought was very interesting. Um, and I think it reflects an appreciation, certainly here in Australia, and I guess uh, with the US as well, and among the other chiefs of defense, that the region is really particularly exposed to climate hazards. And I just thought I'd, uh, I'd sound you out when we think of these systemic risks that climate is accelerating, whether it's food or energy or trade. It'd be great to hear what you think, if you, if you had to make a list of the things you're most worried about, what's at the top of the list? Well, it's obviously top of mind for island nations in the Pacific. Climate is an existential risk for them. From the U.S. perspective, there are also strategic considerations given the rise of geostrategic competition in the region. And so there are goals for free and open Indo-Pacific uh, that are paramount and that climate change complicates that uh, in many respects. One, there's a potential problems of the region's habitability that are first and foremost among them, uh, priority concerns of our, of our allies and partners. And so having an offer set that simultaneously addresses those existential fears of, uh, of our friends in the Pacific, but also uh, deals with the extant uh, geostrategic uh, competition is how those twin concerns can be simultaneously addressed or are, are really what we're grappling with at the moment. And in the service of uh, wanting this region to be habitable and prosperous and continue to facilitate commerce are, are really uh, what we all have to aspire for and ensure that the people in the region are able to determine their own destiny. Uh, and there are structural drivers, both uh, of large actors outside the region that may impinge upon that and large forces like climate change that are reducing the scope for choice and opportunity. And you know, we need to uh, do what we can to ensure that folks have the best uh, future possible. Maybe that's something we could do together uh, after Australia completes it, cl its climate and security risk assessment. Maybe there'll be an opportunity to compare notes with the United States and the U.S.'s approach. Josh, thank you very much for being with us on Policy, Guns and Money. And thanks also for the great work you're doing on this important topic. Thanks so much for having me. That's all we have time for on Policy, Guns and Money. This week you had conversations with Fergus Hansen, Director of ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Richard Russo, Senior Advisor and Wadwani Chair in US-India Policy Studies at CSIS, Barney Graywell, Analyst at ASPE, Akriti Vasudeva, Fellow with the Simpson Centre's South Asia Program, and Dr. Tista Prakash, former Lowy Institute Research Associate, Dr. Robert Glasser, Head of ASPE's Climate and Security Policy Centre, and Professor Joshua Busby, Professor of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin and Senior Advisor for Climate at the U.S. Department of Defense. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.